0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week.
1: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. In studio today, keeping me company, is Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Ross. Good evening. Uh, and, uh, well, it's just us today uh, in studio. We're just going to handle this uh, first couple of stories by ourselves, jam out the major stories of the week in the first half. Because in the second half, uh, we're going to be very lucky to be joined by Tim Culpin, who is a columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Uh, and the three of us will be discussing in depth uh, the finally final Hanhai Sharp buyout plan. We'll also talk a little bit about the uh, prospects for tech startups in Taiwan, so lots of good business insights to look forward to in the second half of the show. Uh, But first, uh, how about you and I, just the two of us, attend to some of the other top headlines of the week, Uh, and uh, we got three big ones to get to, but we're going to start off with kind of a smaller one that rolled out just yesterday. Uh, and that is the cabinet appointments. Uh, we just got a taste of what Tsai Ing-wen's cabinet is going to look like uh, once her term begins. Um, we didn't get all of the appointments. Uh, I, I think it was just eight officials. Um, and most of them are ministers without portfolio. So the, uh, the, the, the folks with portfolio would be uh, the health minister and then also the uh, deputy premier. So those would probably be the two major names to remember. Uh, but Ross, uh, you were telling me before we turned these mics on that you're kind of meh on the whole thing.
2: Well, uh, it goes to what, what you said um, in the introduction that, that we're going to be talking about business issues in depth later on. And given the overriding concern about economic growth in Taiwan, whether it's the slowdown in exports, stagnant salaries, et cetera, uh, the, and the fact that Tsai Ing-wen largely built her campaign around improving the economy – the question for the incoming president and, and her premier, Mr. Lin Quan, is why didn't we start with the economics and the business people? Why are we starting with a number of ministers without portfolio or deputy premier and the minister of health? Now, now, those ministers without portfolio, they do have various policy areas assigned to them, and some of them have been assigned business areas. Uh, What's unclear is whether those people who are assigned business or economic, trade, et cetera, related issues, uh, are are they secondary to the to-be-appointed Minister of Economic Affairs or uh, chairperson of the National Development Commission – uh, or are these going to be the leaders in those areas? If, if these are going to be the leaders of, in, in those areas, then the people who are coming later will be you know, number two in developing policies. But that, that hasn't been clearly explained. And the people who who were appointed yesterday are, are not particularly well-known, mostly from an academic background. Uh, some of them served in government before. The worry is that the, it's going to be more of the same in the, in the sense that one of the Frustrations that the public had with uh, the outgoing government is a lot of academics, mm. a lot of people who lack private sector experience.
1: Well, that's—I mean—that's pretty characteristic of Taiwan politics,
2: not just in the uh, executive Yuan but also in the legislative Yuan. That—that—that's true. Uh, but uh, we really were hoping for something different with with the new government. Given that she said that she is going to really emphasize economic regeneration. That's right. And, and uh, to, to take this one step further, to the extent that the the People who have been appointed to the cabinet are, are not just academics but people who have experience in government, whether it was in the previous Chen Shui-bian administration. At least in this first wave, we, were, we don't see too much uh, KMT-affiliated personalities uh, mm. despite – uh, Bipartisan uh, nods. Right, early right. on. Yeah. Um, then it's also people who may have served in, in local governments, and, and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, having some government experience would be good, but uh, – Not exactly the heavy hitters. Well, yeah, that's the issue, right? We're, we're trying to uh, jumpstart a, a exporting economy that's competing against uh, neighbors and, and other – countries around the world in various sectors, and we'll talk more about that with with Tim later on. But uh, if somebody has been a a relatively junior official 10, 15 years ago in the then Taipei County government, and now we're going to make them a minister without portfolio, are these the right people for the job at this time? All right. Well,
1: uh, we've got a second round coming up, I believe, on April 20th. We're going to meet the rest of the faces for this cabinet, see how that shakes up. Uh, But we're going to leave that little note right there. Uh, Folks at home, you know, you can crack open your paper, get acquainted with those new faces. But we're going to move on to uh, the other big headline that came out yesterday. Uh, That being that Tainan prosecutors have decided that they're going to move forward with charges against five individuals involved in the construction of the Weiguan Jinlong building. Uh, and just to warn everybody out there, uh, we have no Gavin here today, so I've got to set up all these stories on my own. You're going to hear a lot of me just rambling on. I'll try to I'll try to make it peppy. I'll do my best. But uh, just for this first one, uh, we're, we're, we're going to get into it now. Uh, just to refresh everyone's memories, that Weiguan Jinlong building, that is the 17-story residential building that collapsed following the magnitude 6.4 earthquake uh, that struck southern Taiwan on February 16th trapping and tragically killing 115 of its residents. Well, prosecutors say they have now completed their investigation into the collapse, and they believe what many have suspected, that corners were indeed cut in the construction of the building. The five indicted individuals include the two architects in charge of design and construction of the building, as well as the man described as the main figure in the case, the building developer, Lin Minghui. Uh, So, Ross, prosecutors say Lean tried to uh, save money by making alterations during the project's design and construction process uh, and also skimmed on building materials, not really uh, putting in as much heavy-duty stuff as they should have, uh, and that this really did impact the structural integrity of uh, the building. But uh, I think a lot of Taiwan's public are pretty jaded about these public safety things. They don't expect to see uh, full... Justice served. And uh, in this case in particular, um, uh, responsibility is so diffuse. There's so many people involved uh, in making a building like this. Uh, are these prosecutors
2: really going to be facing an uphill battle? It's certainly going to be a lengthy battle. And as many of your listeners would know, the comparable case is what's called the Lincoln Mansions, which collapsed in, in a typhoon, Typhoon Winnie, in 1997. Mm. And, well, not as many people perished in that disaster as as died in, in, in the Tainan building collapse, which was due to an earthquake, not a typhoon. But uh, about, around 30 people died in, in these. this Lincoln Mansion collapse. The building was built into the, the hillside. Uh, there were very similar accusations about corners being cut in the construction, uh, permits being issued based on false data that was provided by the builders. And a large number of people were indicted. On criminal charges, uh, including the, the people from the uh, contractor and, and the developer and, and government officials who issued approvals, who were accused of uh, taking bribes or looking the, wrong, the other way when they were given uh, faulty or deficient documentation. Uh, these people who were convicted then appealed, and, and these court cases went on until about 2009. So you see the length of time that these things can drag mm. with, with the ability to appeal right it goes up and down through the court system as different parts of the the criminal charges get get uh, ruled on at the lower court level, then goes up comes back down, and the ultimate result was the overwhelming majority of the people who were originally indicted, whether they were from the builder side or the government officials who were accused of wrongdoing, were ultimately found not guilty. Mm -hmm. And what was initially claimed by prosecutors, we're going to go after everyone and we're going to get them long jail sentences. Uh, I think the, the main builder wound up getting a jail sentence of less than a year or so. Uh, these are an uphill – this is an uphill battle, as you said, and it's going to be a lengthy battle. A- and on the compensation side, the people who were affected by the collapse of this Lincoln Mansions were also still seeking compensation from the relevant government agencies 10 or 12 years later as well. Mm. So it's it's hard to be optimistic about a, a just result with any speed.
1: Mm. Well, a little bit of cold water being thrown on the prospects there. Let's uh, throw even a little bit more cold water on the whole thing, uh, because uh, there's a victims group that kind of represents the families in this case. And as soon as uh, the prosecutors came out with these indictments, uh, they were very quick to say, wait a second, isn't something missing here? There's no public officials on this list at all. And clearly, I mean, at some point, a public official stamped off uh, approving, you know, various sections of, uh, you know, the the whole building process. It's a long process. There's many points at which uh, public officials are involved. So they're implicated in this in some way. Uh, So, I mean, should we be a little surprised that uh, there's
2: there's no public uh, official that's been involved in this at all? Well, there are a couple of points. One, the, these uh, indictments might still be coming mm-hmm. of the public official. So maybe the prosecutors simply need more time mm-hmm. and they're still conducting the investigation. Then again, uh, as as we discussed earlier, just looking at this earlier example of the Lincoln Mansions case, where uh, if I recall correctly, all of the public officials who were initially indicted were eventually found not guilty. So it might also be a challenge to prove the guilt. So if there is not uh, evidence of a bribe being paid for example uh, the why bother indicting the government officials if they could simply say well i I was given uh, the documentation. If it was false, then go after the person who provided or submitted the false documentation to the government agency. And this was a building that was constructed back in 1993. So, I mean, this is all going to be pretty difficult. I mean, you couldn't have a much colder trail at this point. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's it's the evidence, right? The difficulty of proving it. So uh, it's happened before. And and again, with government officials uh, being able to escape uh, any guilt uh, for these kinds of situations. So the prosecutors are probably being a bit conservative as well. All right. Well,
1: uh, Mr. Lin ming he is still being held incommunicado uh, by authorities. I think uh, some of the other defendants in this case, uh, they've posted bail. Um, so this is something that's going to be with us uh, for a while. And- uh, well, uh, we can we can only hope that uh, the full process is uh, carried out in a full and somewhat speedier manner than we've uh, hinted at during this conversation. But as always, I, as I end so many stories, uh, we're going to have to wait and see. Moving on to our international story for the day. I'm a big fan of alliteration, so I, I, I'm glad that we get to report on this next one. The Panama Papers. That is the tax evasion and money laundering scandal that shook the world this week. Uh, And it also brushed up against Taiwan as well. Uh, I'm not going to oversell it. Uh, No huge revelation so far, at least that's my sense. Uh, But we have gotten a bit of an official response here in Taiwan, so at least worth noting. Um, Our listeners should be pretty familiar with the peculiar Panama Papers at this point. Uh, these are the 11. Oh, man, I've gotten spit all over my uh, <laughs> my script. <laughs> Getting too into it. Anyway, these are the 11 million documents leaked from uh, Panama based law firm Masak uh, Fonseca by uh, a German newspaper. The German newspaper did the leaking. Uh, purportedly, uh, these documents reveal how the world's rich and powerful have used their offshore accounts uh, at this firm to evade taxes and regulations and launder money. Uh, well, journalism organizations around the world are helping to sift through this mountain of documents. Here in Taiwan, leading that charge is Commonwealth magazine, also known as Tian They released uh their findings from their seven months of analysis uh just Wednesday, so only two days ago. Uh and well, kind of there just wasn't too much there there. Probably the biggest name to be turned up uh by this report uh would be author and singer Nikki Wu. Uh, so no real political scandal here to talk about, uh, but they did report on uh, almost 3,000, 2,700 uh, in that range, uh, offshore companies uh, with connection to Taiwan that were kind of turned up in this document dump, had dealings uh, with this Panama
2: law firm. Uh, so is there a potential for scandal there, Ross? Oh, definitely. I-, I would still expect prominent people to be uh Uh, revealed as having involvement with uh, the uh, law firm in Panama and and was structuring their investments through that law firm and using offshore vehicles. Uh, part Part of the reason why we might not have heard of Prominent people yet is one the Romanization of the names and you know, trying to figure out uh, who these people are who are listed uh, in in, in the English rendering of their names. So that, an even, that that takes a ch- the yeah. time that might be a challenge. Uh, very often people will use relatives as well. You're so, talking about the prominent people from the Panama Papers, that, right? Exactly. Thanks for the the peas. Uh, and uh, so so that'll take some time as well to to map mm-hmm. the names back to the Chinese names. Map those people to their relatives or their friends, if if they were holding the investment you know, on behalf of relatives or friends. And, and then the same thing with the companies as well. So the Taiwan link companies, again, trying to map who those companies belong to uh, and whether or not they belong to prominent people or, or simply well-to-do people who aren't necessarily prominent. Paltry people. There you go. Perhaps uh, even poppers. Yeah. The, one one interesting thing uh, earlier in the week was the Taiwan media uh, including some of the English media based in Taiwan, rushed to report that there was over 16,000 people in this leak. And actually, that that is incorrect. The 16,000 figure came from an earlier leak right. of offshore banking information that, that was investigated by the same consortium of international mm-hmm. uh, publications. But there's uh, nothing new there. Well, well, it's just a completely unrelated set mm-hmm. of, of documents from, right. from different uh, sources, and, and the earlier one was, uh, I think, three years ago, and that one did reveal over 16,000 individuals from Taiwan who were using offshore banking services. Uh, but somehow, uh, a, a lot of people in the Taiwan media rushed to report this new Panama paper leak as involving 16,000 uh, to Taiwan Right. Uh, based uh, clients. And, and that was incorrect. So n- not not the best moment for uh, the Taiwan media. Well, we waited till Friday. If we had done this show on Wednesday, we might have messed it up too. But luckily,
1: we get to <laughs> wait till Friday. Uh, lucked out there. Let's turn to the government response to this whole thing. Um, and the Ministry of Finance has said that it uh, plans to investigate But it it, it seems like, again, I mean, we're at another issue that seems like it's a pretty difficult case to make in general. Uh, And and, I mean, I don't have much experience, so maybe you could tell me about it, but... uh just having one of these accounts doesn't make you a criminal. As uh, many people have pointed out this week, there are legitimate reasons to have offshore accounts. So uh, making the case that this was an offshore account that is serving a
2: fraudulent purpose, uh, that's going to be tough for the ministry to do. That's right. And as the lawyers and accountants will often emphasize, there's a significant difference between tax evasion, which mm-hmm. is illegal, and tax avoidance, which is legal. So uh, the defense that many of the individuals or or companies involved will say is this was a perfectly legitimate way to structure our investments. Uh, But if, in fact, they evaded any taxes due, whether it's in Taiwan or other jurisdictions, then they'll be liable for the back taxes. But uh, as you pointed out, the government has limited resources to investigate offshore investments. Uh, in these situations, what typically happens in Taiwan is there is somebody who, who would provide specific information to the authorities and kind of makes it a lot easier for them to investigate so on. And, and uh, that, that's often when investigations kick off with, in, in the financial space. Usually, the authorities would have to have specific information uh, about a, an individual or a company that's engaged in wrongdoing because they, they have very limited resources. All right. And I guess I guess the
1: underlying question that I've been kind of thinking about all week is how how shocked should we really be by these uh, revelations? I mean, I think everybody I think we all knew that uh, some kind you know, rich people have ways of holding on to their wealth, of controlling their wealth. Uh, And obviously, this has rocked various uh, politicians around the world. Uh, The prime minister of Iceland knocked him out of his seat. Uh but I mean should we really be all that surprised that uh rich people have found this kind of shell game uh to, to hide their wealth? Uh and, and, and let's uh kinda keep this circumscribed to Taiwan in particular. I mean, many thousands of names of you know involved in this. Is that anything that surprises you?
2: No, that that wealthy people would would seek to structure their investments in in various ways, whether it's for reducing tax burden in in a perfectly legal and legitimate way or uh, allotting assets among family members, uh, wealth management planning, etc. That is not surprising at all. Here's the surprising part, and and so far we haven't seen this yet from Taiwan-based clients, but what will shock people and surprise people – as, the, as more information comes out, is the size of assets, the size of wealth that some of the people had, especially... When it is a government official whether mm-hmm. it's in a democracy like Iceland or in countries that are not democracies like China so as we learn more and we find out the size of the wealth of some of the individuals involved and frankly as we've learned in the last few days it seems that some of the Politburo members and their families in China had have extraordinarily extraordinary wealth which we kind of knew from various other investigative reporting uh, over the years uh, but you know, the size of, of assets that some of these government officials have is can be quite shocking. And and obviously, then leads to questions about whether there's corruption involved. So uh, I guess this week, we're getting a little
1: peekaboo at the lifestyles of the global rich and the famous. Uh, Interesting to get a look at that. Um, But once again, I guess that's going to be the theme of today, we're gonna have to wait and see exactly uh, what it does turn up here in Taiwan. Last up, and I want to hit this one very quickly. uh, On the diplomacy front, the US and Taiwan very early this week, agreed to cooperate on a new program aimed at expediting travel between the two countries. This program is being called uh, the International Expedited Traveler Initiative. Uh, and basically, uh, my sense is that if the government feels like you're not a shifty fella, if they can trust you for whatever reason the government uh, deems an individual trustworthy, uh, you can get through immigration just a little bit faster. Uh, I don't know too much about this. Uh, I'm always stuck in a pretty long line when I head back into Taiwan or head back into the U.S. Uh, Ross, uh, can can you flesh this
2: out a little bit? What, what does this program actually mean? It's unclear, frankly, simply because uh, U.S. passport holders now get visa upon landing, so you don't need to pre-apply pre pre uh, pre-apply for uh, entry into Taiwan, uh, especially if you're coming here for a visit for tourism. Um there, there's also a frequent visitor program, which the National Immigration Agency uh, has not done uh, a lot of promotion for. But if you are, you're not based here, so for, for listeners who are not based in Taiwan, uh, there is a program where you could apply on the National Immigration Agency website for expedited entry already. A- and you apply online, you get a, a, a instant approval, you print it out, and then you get to stand on a, a faster line. At the airport in Taiwan, uh, so that program already exists as well there 's also the APEC travel card, which a lot of uh, people have, which also allows for expedited entry uh, and then there 's e gate for the people who do have alien resident uh, certificates who have taiwan ID cards uh, they They can use their uh, ID cards so there are already a number of programs to allow for uh, expedited entry, so it 's a little unclear why this is different. Is this
1: uh, perhaps just a, an excuse to say relations between Taiwan and the U.S. are great? Look at all these deals we're signing.
2: Yeah, that that that's a factor as well, especially given. Uh Recent tensions over various Mm -hmm. issues, ongoing tension in the upcoming uh, leadership transition, which is leading to a lot of questions as well about the future of U.S. Taiwan relations. Uh, So, yeah, part of it is just uh, uh, being able to promote the close relationship between the governments, and and that's always a good thing. Uh, There's also been recent news, somewhat similar news, about uh, driver license reciprocity Mm -hmm. between U.S. states and Taiwan. So, Taiwan is always seeking to add additional states, which is somewhat distinguished from the expedited entry because for the driver license, Taiwan has to engage directly with state governments rather than the federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anything that that shows the, the two sides are talking. Uh, I think you know, those of us in the business community would probably prefer that issues such as uh, food entry and other <laughs> regulatory issues are, are resolved rather than this because uh, again w- with the, the various programs that are already available this wasn't so much of an issue if people know about these programs and they're promoted appropriately Now
1: uh, I guess the big question is uh, when you look at me do you see a low risk traveler? Do you think I could make it into this program? Uh, well
2: uh, it depends. You know, do, do you want to be frisked and searched? And, uh,
1: you got you, you miss out on the frisking and the searching <laughs> if you get into this program. I don't know if this program's for me. All right. Well, uh, maybe some of our uh, listeners can't avail themselves of this anyway. Some uh, faster traveler options for you. Uh, but we're going to leave that. That is our last story for our first half of the show. We're going to take a quick break here. When we return, we're spending the whole second half with Tim Culpin for an extended conversation on the Hanhai Sharp deal. Paired with a look at tech and business in Taiwan. Going to get a lot of expert insights on both of those fronts. That's all coming up when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. I'm Keith Menconi, joined in studio by Ross Feingold, Also joining us now, uh, as I've mentioned before, is Tim Culpin. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly, Bloomberg's home for commentary and analysis. Tim Culpin, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. And uh, we can hear a little bit there behind you. Uh, Is is that the Bloomberg offices? Yeah, I'm
0: actually in Hong Kong this week, and So what you're hearing in the background is the noise of a live, uh, living, breathing
1: newsroom. There we go. Some authenticity on the show today. Well, I'm very happy to have both of you here, uh, because you're both kind of business sorts of guys. you got a fair amount of business knowledge, business acumen, uh, and we've got some big business to attend to. It was touch and go there for a bit, but Hanhai Chairman Terry Goh and Sharp President Kozo Takahashi made their merger agreement official last weekend, basically bonding together on the Taiwan side, the world's largest contract maker of iPhones. And on the Japan side, uh, a troubled yet venerable titan of electronics. Uh, of course, uh, this will-they-won't-they they drama has spanned about four years. Uh, and Even just a few weeks ago, the deal stalled out after Hanhai turned up outstanding liabilities on the sharp side. Uh, but I guess there's been some renegotiation, and it looks like Hanhai has secured uh, for itself a slightly sweeter deal here. Uh, Still a big one, something on the order of 3.5 billion U.S. dollars. So let's really start with the basics for folks that aren't too familiar with these two companies uh, and this deal in general. Tim, uh, tell us about what this is going to mean for both of these companies.
0: Right. Well, through some kind of pretty complicated uh, maneuverings, Foxconn, uh, the group overall, will be taking a 66% stake in Sharp. They're doing it through various of their smaller units. For example, High Precision Industry Co., the listed company, will be getting a stake. And in the end, it basically means that they have a controlling stake, a significant controlling stake, in Sharp and Terry Gore wants this because he wants to be able to broaden the uh, array of products that he offers to his own clients. Sharp makes, you know, the flat panel screens that go into TVs and iPhones and so forth. They also make a lot of components, this, you know, the important little stuff that go inside devices. Foxconn doesn't do a lot of that, and they want to do more because uh, there's a lot of money in it. And so his theory is that, yes, as you say, Sharp is troubled. He thinks he can turn it around. And by combining his you know, manufacturing prowess with Sharp's uh, very good technology, it can be a win-win situation. So that's his real uh, reason for doing this deal.
1: Now, how has this deal changed over the last couple of weeks? Of course, Sharp accepted the deal, as I just mentioned a second ago, uh, that had been proposed earlier by Hanhai. Uh, But then that kind of got held up for a couple of weeks and now it looks like uh, there's a slightly more favorable deal for Hanhai. How, How has that changed exactly?
0: Yeah, you no, know, that's a good point. Uh, basically, Foxconn was not the only one looking to do the merger with a sharp. There was another outfit called Inc. J, uh, which is basically a Japanese government bank um, consortium. Uh, they were also bidding. And early on in the process, it looked like the Japanese were the preferred bidder and that Foxconn was not their uh, their preferred partner. But Thierry Guo put on a lot of pressure and tried to really convince them. He uh, raised the amount of money he was willing to pay for it. But just as the deal looked like it was ready to be signed, and then Foxconn was chosen as as the preferred partner, Foxconn said, "Oh, well, we've found what we call contingent liabilities, which is liabilities that may or may not actually happen, such as you know pension payments and so forth." So, they spent the following month going through the books much more closely. And leverage that into cutting about a hundred billion dollars or almost nine hundred million US dollars off the price of the deal. But one thing, Keith, that's very important to note is at the same time this was happening, Sharp was actually revising its own outlook for earnings and. They then, in the same period of time, said, well, you know, the earnings we thought we were going to deliver were not as good, and in fact, we're going to have a much wider loss than expected. So it was kind of a little bit of a pyrrhic victory in this renegotiation because uh, Sharp's conditions weren't as as strong as uh, they had said either.
1: Well, let's kind of stick with that point because, uh, as you've pointed out, there there is some risk involved with this acquisition because it's not necessarily a sure thing, uh, that Hanhai will be able to turn them around.
0: You're right. It is a big risk because uh, Terry Gore likes to use the example of a smaller business of shops that he did buy into personally with his own money. It's a company called Sakai Display. Sakai is a, a region of, uh, of Japan. This smaller uh, outfit does make displays. It was, it was unprofitable and, and he came in and helped turn it around with his management team. And he likes to use that as an example of you know how he can get things done. But the largest sharp company has a lot of problems, one of which is that uh, there's not a lot of flexibility with the the staff. Uh, you know, Japanese staff are much more expensive than Taiwanese or Chinese staff, and you can't fire people in Japan. So that's a really big overhead from the get-go. When you come in and buy a large Japanese company and you're saddled with 50,000 workers and you can't really do anything with them. So Terry Gore is going to need to find a way to, uh, you know, cut those costs or incentivize those workers to, to be you know, more efficient or turn things around there, that's going to be a big problem. The other thing, Keith, is that as part of the merger agreement, uh, Terry Gore had agreed not to sell off any parts of Sharp. Sharp does lots of different businesses, including solar panels, uh, white goods like you know refrigerators, uh, in addition to even its own brand of mobile phone. And a lot of those things won't necessarily fit into the larger Foxconn you know, strategy or plan. But Terry Caw can't get rid of them. He has to hold on to them. And some of them could actually fetch a pretty good price. So he's got to find a way to make it work having these maybe less preferable businesses as part of uh, now the Foxconn group.
1: All right. Well, let's uh, let's bring Ross into this conversation. So we're hearing there about a lot of uh, potentially dead weight that Han Hai is going to have to face, uh, a lot of baggage. Uh, do you see similar prospects? Uh, do you also see a big challenge
2: there? Well, certainly, the, uh, any integration of two large organizations, a uh, deal of this size, uh, when it, especially when it's cross-border, cross-cultural, as as Tim mentioned, is very challenging, and that would apply in any industry, perhaps even more so in the technology industry where we're dealing with extraordinarily complex processes, whether it's uh, research and development, manufacturing, the, the distribution channels. Uh, but you know, to be fair to the companies involved or the management team, and we could let Tim elaborate this uh, on this as well, uh, there are also risks on the upside, right? There are some things that could happen that would uh, turn this story from a, a negative story. And, and you know, the market perception is that this is not a, a wonderful deal for Foxconn and Hon that there are risks, but there are some risks on the upside. Uh, you know, the marketplace could uh, improve for LED displays. It uh, could be a new product that uh, you know, causes uh, growth in some of Sharp's key product areas. So you know, it, We shouldn't be entirely negative on, on the deal. I want to kind of
1: broaden this discussion beyond uh, the specifics of what this is going to mean for these two companies into, you know, what does this mean for business in Taiwan in general? Uh, we've kind of talked about this with Ross before. He pointed out that the uh, the fact that uh, perhaps there were some due diligence issues uh, in this deal, the fact that Hanhai didn't go through all the paperwork uh, maybe as early as they should have. Uh, could maybe give the international community some pause when they think about how Hanhai and other Taiwanese businesses uh, approach international deals and international business. But, I mean, at the end of the day, this is a huge deal the whole world is watching, uh, and it's being conducted, led by a, a, a Taiwanese company. So, I mean, what does this all say to you, Tim?
0: Well, yeah, it's a good point about the due diligence. Someone within the Foxconn group or within the advisors advising them to drop the ball. Uh, there's just no other way to look at it. They, of course, blame the Japanese and blame Sharp for not telling them beforehand. But when you've been negotiating for four years, you should know what questions to ask and you should at least know whether or not you've looked closely enough. At things like contingent liabilities, but you know they did seem to you know pick up the ball and and deal with it from there on. But some of this is really specific to Foxconn. They don't like really to hire outside advisors. They like to do everything on their own. And so when it comes to doing deals, the truth is, I mean, the history of Foxconn is that they haven't done deals very well. Most of their deals haven't been great deals. But for Taiwan in general, one thing that you'll notice is there's almost no cross-border M and A happens uh, into Taiwan, especially. The times that uh, you know foreign companies have tried to buy into or even take over. Taiwanese companies are very, very few, and they tend to get knocked back by uh, regulators in Taiwan. And that's a real problem. That's a really, really big problem because there's a lot of consolidation going on in the tech industry globally. Taiwan needs to be part of that. But if regulators keep uh, you know, shaking their head and saying it's not going to happen, then Taiwan ends up getting left out of that party. And so that's really a re- regulatory problem in Taiwan
2: that has to be
1: dealt with. Tell, okay, so for uh, a non-business guy such as myself, tell me why, uh, you know, as somebody who cares about the economic prospects for Taiwan, uh, why, do, why do I care about that? Because when I hear about, you know, giant economic consolidation, giant mergers, uh, I mean, that's, that sounds like, you know, big conglomerates. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of that. So, so why is that something that uh, I should be a fan of?
0: Well, it's, it's kind of like this. If you're in a business that was doing really well for a few years and you've managed to grow your staff to 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people uh, and you're doing really well, but then that industry starts to slow down, if you don't uh, you know, pair up with someone else and maybe get some economies of scale or leverage uh, you know, what we call vertically, so within the supply chain, doing something else that you weren't previously doing, What's going to happen is that your revenue is going to fall, your profits are going to fall. You're not going to be able to employ those fifty thousand people you had before, and you have to start cutting staff. If, on the other hand, you get taken over or merged with someone, you can uh, join forces and you can keep that development going, and you can keep, uh, you know, basically expanding your business while you've teamed up with someone else. Um, you know, one plus one often equals more than two. It does sometimes and does often uh, incur staffing cuts, but sometimes just, you know, letting things wither away on their own will incur incur even bigger cuts. And so it's part of the process of the economic cycle to merge as industries slow down.
1: All right. So a a, a lot of issues there uh, tangled up in uh, Taiwan's economic future. A lot to dwell on in this deal uh, as it unfolds. I mean, real quick, before we end this segment, uh, is this a done deal? I mean, is there anything that could derail this merger at this point?
0: Uh, it looks done. The two of them signed, uh, you know, something in public in uh, in Japan last week. So uh, it looks done. But I wouldn't be surprised if something stumbles along the way. But so far, I would say we're almost over the line. All
1: right, almost over the line. There, we will uh, leave it on that note. And uh, well. Stick with business, though, for this next segment that we're going to do while we have Tim Culpin on the line. Uh, This is a a good excuse to take on a subject that uh, is also very important for Taiwan. Uh, the startup scene around here. Uh, and uh, the reason that it's good to get you in on this, Tim, is uh you're actually going to be the moderator for a Foreign correspondence Club event later this week uh, that is taking a look at the challenges and the prospects for uh, Taiwan's startup scene. Uh, this is something that we actually discussed very directly only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there was a, uh, a Forbes article out that was kind of uh, arguing that some of the challenges of the startup scene in Taiwan is just the fact that Well, this is the article, not me speaking, that perhaps Taiwan is too cozy. Uh, Perhaps uh, folks here are more afraid of uh, failure than they are of missing out, as they put it. So that was some of the challenges that they saw. Uh, What about you yourself? I mean, we were just talking about uh, Foxconn and Hanhai uh, and uh, some of the areas of growth for Taiwan that uh, that has. Of course, startups is another possible area of growth uh, that Taiwan might enjoy What are some of the challenges that you see there
0: yeah well i think uh you know the forbes article hit the nail on the head you know before you can get to be a company the size of foxconn you have to start somewhere right every every large company started as a startup somewhere um and it is somewhat true that in taiwan things are a little bit comfortable a little bit cozy the feedback i get from investors a lot in taiwan is that uh, they're not hungry enough in taiwan Uh, and so you've got this concept in silicon valley of fomo fear of missing out but you've also got this concept of failure. And so, you know, the Culpin equation, which I've I've created basically states that if your fear of missing out is higher than your fear of failure, then people will get out there and and start up companies. But if your fear of failure exceeds your fear of missing out you're basically going to sit in your comfortable corporate job or academic position and not really take that leap out into the wild of, of setting up a business we are seeing that change recently it's changing on a few areas one is that we're starting to see some somewhat famous um, startups getting a bit of traction getting a bit of media attention and that tends to inspire people just as you see you know a sports star you know uh, having a great season and suddenly everyone wants to go out and play say Basketball, It happens similar in business. Gogoro in Taiwan is a good example. Everyone's kind of, you know, is is all gaga about Gogoro, and that's inspiring a lot of people to to go out there and give it a go. There's a a lot of other companies. There's another company in Taiwan called Appia, which is in the business of what we call ad tech, so developing technologies for delivering advertisements. In the business sphere, that's creating a certain amount of excitement, and and so more and more people are inspired to, to give it a go and take the risk. The government's also getting on board. Uh, there's a lot of money going around in Taiwan, uh, for startups. There's certainly not a shortage of money. The shortage really is in ideas and in broadening ideas to be global ideas. There's really smart, um, you know, engineers in Taiwan. But not necessarily having the what we call business development skills to to take a product idea or a technology, and then saying, okay, how do I spin that out? How do I expand that or scale up? They, you know, uh, investors love the term scaling. How do you get it from you know a couple of hundred thousand people, or for you know for an island of Taiwan, twenty-three million people, and expand it overseas so that your product can be used overseas? That's a bit of a problem in Taiwan. So that external perspective uh, is lacking, but it is changing.
1: Right, and I've actually heard uh, very similar things from some of the uh, entrepreneurial uh, Taiwanese folks that I've spoken to, uh, basically saying that... uh, they're looking to uh, get more exposure to foreign markets and the culture in other countries so that they can understand what users of their apps in other countries would desire and they can make things that, you know, would be successful beyond the Taiwan market. Uh, so, we, okay, uh, Ross, we've heard kind of a range of uh, issues there. What's, what, what, what's your take? I mean, you're familiar with uh, this uh, area as well. Well, uh, to,
2: to use the reference to scale that, that Tim used in, in a somewhat different perspective, the, the money that Tim referred to as, as being available here, if the people who have the money, the investors from Taiwan, they have to weigh whether they want to invest in Taiwan companies despite the challenges that Tim described or if they could simply take the capital that they have here in Taiwan, which they may have earned in, in the uh, really good years of Taiwan's tech industry, a- and take that capital and invest in other places, whether it's China or obviously Silicon Valley uh, right. Or other up and coming IT locations around the world. So, like so some Taiwan, of the other, Taiwan so like needs something to d- make it distinctive, right? Or... So, this is like many, of the, many of the other economic challenges that Taiwan has. It's not only in the IT industry. It's whether to invest the capital here, or are there attractive investment opportunities here in Taiwan for those investors in the tech industry? Uh, and we've outlined the challenges. Uh, the executives might not be knowledgeable about overseas markets, et cetera, et cetera. But why should the investor wait and, and train them? They might as well take their capital to mm-hmm. uh, another location where there's more attractive startup companies. Mm. So I guess a uh, overriding question then would be,
1: why Taiwan? Why Taiwan startups? Why do I put my money there? Uh, Tim, do you, do you have an answer for that, for why Taiwan?
0: Why Taiwan, I guess, is, it comes down to the skill set. When you're starting up a business, you want to be sure that you can hire the skilled people um, that are going to be needed to build your product. At the, at the very fundamental level of, of starting a company, you need to build a product. Taiwan has fantastic hardware engineers. So if you're going to do anything in hardware, Taiwan's a very good place to go because they're very good quality hardware, very good at, at spinning a hardware idea to, through the design phase through to manufacturing. So why Taiwan? Obviously, that is one area. Another area is kind of that a lot of people globally have always looked at Taiwan as being that first entry point into China. Beyond, you know, the similar or the same language, uh, there is a certain amount of, you know, cultural similarity. Of course, we like to think that there's a lot of difference between Taiwan and China. But if you look at the global perspective, there's a lot of similarity. And Taiwanese business people have been very, very successful in China. Uh, so the the hope would be that if you were to you know back a Taiwanese startup, that startup might have a good chance of of going big in China. So there are two of the reasons why you might want to invest in Taiwan.
1: Mm. Last uh, last point I want to kind of take up here uh, as we discuss uh, startups in Taiwan is kind of going back to what you were talking about a second ago in terms of uh, you need to be hungry enough uh, to really make it uh, as a startup. Um, I think uh, one of the challenges uh, that is facing a lot of Taiwanese young people is, you know, straight out of college, the starting wages, even if you're somebody that went to National Taiwan University, rarely cracks 30,000 NT a month. I mean, these are not uh, solid wages that people have. Uh, And so this conservatism uh, may to some extent be a reflection of the economic reality that there's just not that much security for uh, young people entering the marketplace Uh, So, I mean, do you see that as something that would make it more difficult for people to take big risks? Or, I mean, perhaps another way to look at it is it would uh, give people an incentive because they have nothing else going on. I mean, how, how do you see that playing out?
0: Uh, I actually think that the lower wage in Taiwan, it is a problem, it's a chronic, it's like a chronic illness in Taiwan for the last decade, Um, it actually is good for startups, because if you uh, finish an engineering degree, you've got the skills, maybe you've, you know, your your classmates, you've got, uh, you know, good contacts in the industry, you think, oh, I'm going to go and get a, you know, a low paying job, 30, 40 K, whatever it is, you know, not much. Is it worth it when maybe if you just step out and start a business, get some money, and you could really, you know, um, go for go for something big? If on the other hand you're getting out of college and and you're getting a really nice, high-paying job, you know, 150,000 NT a month or something like that, uh, why would you give that up to take the risk of a startup? So as wages go low, and we've seen this globally, they started to prove this as things go. As wages fall, as economic situations get a little bit dire in certain sectors, more and more people decide they're going to take the risk because they've got nothing to
2: lose. Historically, though, it's usually people who, who are a little older, a little more experienced. Uh, mm. the, the challenge would be for a young person w- with relatively little experience uh, in the workforce and certainly with relatively little, little experience on the marketing side or these internationalization issues that we discussed earlier, would that person who's trying to start a new company attract serious investment from the investors that we've been discussing? And that would be a challenge in Taiwan. You know, would investors mm-hmm. put money into a company run by a 22- or 23-year-old, which is something maybe in Silicon Valley that is not all that unusual?
1: Right. was a, a pattern that I, I mean, I'm not in the... Uh in this world at all really but just from the people that i know and the people that i've spoken with a pattern that i'm seeing is a lot of people that do some work they go overseas to the u.s. to silicon valley perhaps uh... they work for a couple of years there and then they come back because they decide you know i really wanna you know live in taiwan uh... and uh... they decide to go it alone here and here is where they decide to start their startup not in silicon valley they decide to do it here uh, so I mean tim is is that a path forward is Is that going to be a big source of uh, startup ingenuity here
0: Yeah, in fact, the returnees are a big thing, and it 's actually something we 've seen in China for many, many years. Uh, Baidu, for example, was started by a returnee Robin Lee had spent time in in California. Uh, and then returned back to, to Beijing to start up Baidu, and now it's you know China's largest search engine. Uh, we're seeing that a little bit more in Taiwan. Appier, actually, as I mentioned before, is a good example of that. Appier was actually technically started in the U.S., and they all decided to come back to Taiwan and grow the business. Uh, so we are seeing more and more Taiwanese deciding to, to come back and, and, and take a punt on a business in Taiwan.
1: All right. Well, uh, plenty of tech stuff to percolate on there, but uh, let's leave it at that. The event we were talking about at the top of this segment, once again, is a Taiwan Foreign Correspondence Club event hosted by Tim. It's going to be on trends in Silicon Valley and the region. Uh, that's going to be this Wednesday morning, April 13th. You can get more info and reserve tickets by emailing info at taiwanfcc.org. Once again, that's info at taiwan. FCC.org. All right, and uh, we're going to move on now to our final podcast bonus story for today, uh, something that we always like to do on the lighter side at the end of the program. Uh, today we're going pretty local. This is a Taipei City story. Uh, Tim, are, are, are you a Taipei resident? Do you spend a lot of time I in am. Taipei? I right, am. in Taipei
0: for 17 years.
1: There we go. So we have one Taipei local. Uh, Ross, you also live in Taipei, right? I live in downtown, sure. There we go. I live in Datong, so we have three Taipei residents to uh, talk about this. Uh, And what we're going to be talking about is the incentives for outing your neighbors, and I guess that would be you guys in this case, uh, for uh, finable infractions. Well, that incentive has just gone up. These infractions, let's just start with that, that we're talking about here, uh, are, for example, if uh, somebody lets their dog take a dump on the street, Little bit A little bit of a mess there. They don't clean it up. That's a finable infraction. Graffiti would be another example. Uh, not cleaning up open standing water, attracting mosquito. That's another infraction. All of these things, if you report somebody, you get the evidence in there and they get fined, uh, you will now get 90% of that fine as uh, kind of an incentive for reporting folk. Um, it used to just be 75%, uh, but the Taipei Department of Environmental Protection is kind of rolling forward with uh, new measures to make this more attractive uh, to residents of Taipei. It turns out last year, uh, out of the 10,000 total fines that were made, only 15 were attributed to informants. So up till now, this has not been something that residents have really uh, been doing. Uh, but let's start with you, Ross. I mean, if uh, if you saw somebody, if you just happened to have your iPhone out and you... Uh, captured somebody letting their dog uh let a rip on the
2: sidewalk would would you report them is that something you'd do uh to be frank i'd probably confront them just (laughs) you you
1: you, you're more of the direct method yeah
2: yeah uh Tib, what do you say
0: uh yeah i might i might confront them first and if they don't uh proceed to you know uh, clean it up or whatever then uh, the next step would be to uh to report them, um, I actually wasn't aware that there was a reporting method or a whistleblower uh, function uh, available in Taipei. But you know, ninety percent. Wow, that's it's pretty high. Uh, new income stream on the side. That's uh, that's pretty uh, pretty
2: generous. <laughs> well, I think the important question here is how would the authorities uh, you know, just determine from a photo of poo to which animal such poo? Well, that's to-
1: ma- that's maybe why it's only fifteen people that have done it before. I mean, you need to you need to basically be a, like a Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you need to go into business with your own detective skills to to really get this going.
2: Well, may- may- maybe uh, for for this startup event next week, there could be you know, some <laughs> great app I- app developers with some right. ideas on this. Absolutely.
0: I've actually not seen uh, dog poo being a big problem in Taipei. Maybe it's just the area I live. It's, I mean, I think litter bugs, uh, people who throw their cigarette butts on the streets, they're bigger problems from from what I noticed. I, I, I actually thought uh, Taipei residents are pretty conscientious about dog poo. Uh, but anything in those realms, if, if it encourages people to act more correctly, it would be a good thing, right?
2: Well, to, to be fair to the authorities, uh, you know, compared to when myself or, or Tim first arrived in, in Taiwan, many years ago uh, there's there certainly a lot less stray dogs mm-hmm. around taipei city compared to the past so, that, so most of the dogs that that we see really are are, are um, owned by responsible pet owners who do clean up after the dog but some of those other issues might 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 be serious enough to warrant increased enforcement uh, litter uh i don't know about graffiti um but now
1: we've got neighbors reporting neighbors. We've got, you know, we've got yeah. informants. We're encouraging an informant society. Is this is this really the best way to deal with these problems? Well,
2: I, I, the tourists from China would certainly find this uh, peculiar because they are they're probably perceive Taiwan as a democracy and freedom. See? And human rights to do whatever you want sometimes. And uh, now we'll have neighborhood committees and informants just like they have in China. Apparently so.
1: Uh okay, I've come up with the name for our app. Let's uh I I d I don't know if you guys will like this or not. Pin the poo. You you pin it on somebody? Does that does that okay. You can pitch oh, it. Oh
2: boy, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well why 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 should we pitch it, uh Keith? I think you should sit on this panel and, and see if you could get some money from the investors who will be in the we, room. We can uh hook you up with some investors who might be willing to go through with you'll, it. You'll need a good Chinese name as well for the app.
1: Well, based on based on your reaction there, I think I may have just lost my invitation to the event.
0: <laughs> Come along and pitch it. You know what? You never know what will uh, take off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, on that note, we're going to leave that discussion for today, uh, wrap up the show. Please do join us again next time. Time When This Week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT-FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, uh, and we've just started posting these to the ICRT blog, so you can find it there as well. Please do leave a comment. Let us know what you're thinking about these stories. Uh, Always good to hear from all of you fine folks out there. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Ross Feingold. Thank you, Ross. Good night. And over the phone from Hong Kong, Tim Culpin. Uh, Tim, thank you as well. Thanks, mate. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.
0: Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw.
1: Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.